Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Dr. Larry Polevsky. Dr. Polevsky, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Dr. Daniel. It's a pleasure being here. I appreciate the invitation. I'm feeling a little bit nervous talking to you because I've been uh, following you for so long now. I kind of feel a bit starstruck. Um, well, that's nice of you to say, but I don't consider myself that way. So let's uh, let's uh, pull down the shields and roll up the sleeves and let's talk. That's it. Uh, I would assume that the majority of my listeners would have some idea of your work and the things that you've been doing. But for anyone who may not have come across the exceptional work that you have been doing um, since 2020 and before that, uh, mm-hmm. would you like to give a bit of a brief introduction about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thank you. Um, I graduated in uh, New York University School of Medicine in 1987, and I did a full pediatric residency at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. One more year of fellowship training in outpatient pediatrics back at NYU um, Bellevue Hospital, which is an inner city hospital. And then for nine years, I was an ER physician. I ran a pediatric intensive care unit. I worked in a neonatal intensive care unit. I covered the inpatient ward, the ER. I went to high-risk deliveries to help uh, resuscitate and save uh, high-risk births. Um, I had a clinic. I taught residents and medical students. And since the year 2000, I have specifically practiced in private practice uh, using a holistic approach to uh, children. It's a really a holistic, integrative pediatric and adolescent medicine practice. And um, along the way, you know, people have said to me along the way, well, now that you don't practice conventional medicine anymore, uh, you know, I scratch my head and I say, what, what are you talking about? Every history I do, every physical exam I do, every differential diagnosis I do is Western medicine. It's conventional medicine. Uh, I have not forgotten any of it. I still use the skills that I use, that I, that I was taught back in the 1980s by pediatricians who've been practicing pediatric medicine in New York City since the 1940s. And so I utilize a good history. I utilize a good physical exam. I utilize a differential diagnosis. Where I differ is that I don't see health and wellness based on um, the uh, and disease as uh, the need to use pharmaceutical medicines or injections. And so I approach it from a position of health. And so just to get to the point, if I see a child with an acute illness, my comment is, this is a sign of wellness because the onset of the illness is actually the body's attempt to clean itself out from a, a threshold met level of toxicity, poison, inflammation, wastes, irritation that must get out of the body. Otherwise, the maintenance of those materials in the body will lead to a chronic illness. And so I don't suppress symptoms. I don't treat symptoms. I support the body's expression of those symptoms. And so I've also realized that that most childhood illnesses, which is again, very juxtaposed to the way the world looks at illness, I see childhood illnesses very infrequently as an infection. Whereas everything that's done in the modern world Every time there's a symptom, it's an infection. It's a mold, it's a fungus, it's a parasite, it's a bacteria, it's a virus. It's always an infection. And uh, based on the ologies of the body, the gastroenterology, the immunology, the neurology, the cardiology, the pulmonology, the dermatology, the neurology, if I said that twice, good, the body is developing symptoms as a way to heal itself from harm. And so the body has the innate capacity to heal. 
And if we go back into our basic sciences, as you are taught in naturopathy school, as chiropractors are taught in chiropractic school, as homeopaths are taught in homeopathic school, as Chinese medicine practitioners are taught in Chinese medical school, as Ayurvedic specialists are taught in Ayurvedic school, the body has the innate capacity to heal. And so we see that embedded in the ologies of the body. Those sciences actually teach us the body has the innate capacity to heal and that every discomfort, every symptom, every expression of symptoms is the body's attempt to heal itself from any threshold met toxicity. And as I've been practicing that over 20 years, I realize that I can support parents to hold the space for their kids to get better. And then they watch their kids have developmental growth spurts. Then they watch the kids get stronger. They sleep better, eat better, talk better, walk better. I mean, you see all these advances. And this is how I was taught 40 years ago, 35 to 40 years ago in medical school in residency, which was that, and it was all wiped out. And so over time, you will see, and this happens across the world, mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers no longer had the tools to hand down the folklore of what it what it took to take care of a kid when the kid was sick. And instead, the advertising, the media, the the pressure from the outside said, oh, didn't you go to the doctor to get medication? How could you not get medication from the doctor? Your child needs medication. So parents no longer understood that a child's illness had to last seven to 10 days sometimes in order for the body to re-regulate itself, come back to a state of homeostasis. Nowadays, if a child is sick for two days, oh, you know, there's something wrong. My child is dying. So the folklore has been lost. That's not being passed down from generation to generation anymore. And I, in my uh, teaching and in my practice, I'm trying to resurrect the, the skills and the teachings and the, and the, the true science um, that, that creates the thread between Western medicine, naturopathy, chiropractic, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic, herbology, homeopathy, etc. That's really cool. So and there you go. No, I love that. And you mentioned that you were taught these principles in medical school 40 years ago, but they're no longer being taught. So why do you think that's the case? Where did it all go wrong? Well, the thing is that it, it wasn't taught as the body has the innate capacity to heal. Right. But it was taught about the, the benefits of the acute illness as a means by which the child goes through a pruning process where the immune system prunes, the nervous system prunes, where the body detoxifies. And with the advent of evidence-based medicine and with the advent of more and more injections and with the advent of um, electronic medical records, insurance-involved medical care, protocol medicine, algorithm medicine, pharmaceutical company control of medical education that's where we are today right and i guess over that period of time we hear like if we look at um the health of people 40 years ago say children or just the population in general um we're sort of told that modern medicine has evolved so much we're so much better off now people are more healthy uh, our lifespan has expanded significantly over that time. Do you see it that way? Do you see um, that children are more healthy today than they were, say, 40 years ago? Well, you know the answer to that question. The answer, of course, is no. Um, but I think it's important to remember, Daniel, that it's really hard for people to fathom that the authorities would tell you a lie. So, you know, my experience is that 
you know, children are not healthier. In fact, they're sicker because I've been on the ground hmm. for, you know, coming this year, it will be 40 years since I started medical school. Incredible. And so I remember in medical school, the there was a locked ward on the very lat, top floor of the hospital for children with autism. You never saw them. And now the numbers are staggering. And of course, those who can't fathom that something really horrible is going on are going to say, oh, that's because we're better at diagnosing it. Yeah. You hear okay, that so we're, we're the same number of 40 to 50 to 60 year olds who are supposed to have autism that were missed way back then, but are now better uh, diagnosed. And so, you know, if you ask teachers, physical therapists, occupational therapists, counselors, um, speech therapists, they'll tell you kids are sicker. If you really, if you stand outside an allergy, pediatric allergist's office or an ear, nose and throat doctor's office or a pulmonologist's office or an immunologist's office, you'll see the waiting lists are so long for people to get into the specialists. And, you know, there are more and more specialists that have come out of medical schools over the last 30 to 40 years because specialization became huge in the 80s, 90s and the noughts. So, you know, we we have tremendous increase in specialists, but yet, um, no, we're, we're healthier somehow. And again, it's unfathomable for people to think that there's some common thread that's going on. And then it's it's important to point out that if you go to a dermatologist, the dermatologist will tell you your diet has nothing to do with the health of your skin. And a pulmonologist will tell the kids with asthma that your diet has nothing to do with the health of your lungs. And an ear, nose, and throat doctor will tell the parents of a kid with ear fluid and enlarged tonsils and adenoids that your diet has nothing to do with the health of your ear canals and your tonsils and your adenoids. And if you go to a gastroenterologist, the gastroenterologist will tell you that your inflammatory bowel disease has nothing to do with your diet. And so as those lies have been propagated, they've become true. And so there's no sort of critical mass thinking that could step back and say, whoa, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. What what are we doing? You know, so you see in schools, you know, the number of kids with food allergies exponentially increased. And in fact, even starting, you know, even the British Medical Journal ha has published articles within the last 20 years about the rapidly rising fatal allergies since the early 1990s. Right? And you see the number of kids in the classrooms with multi-pharmaceutical multi drugs that they're on. Kids are on two, three, four drugs starting at three years of age. And, you know, I've been practicing over 20 years able to not use pharmaceuticals or injections. And so that you know, that would sort of look people, you know, people would look at that and go, no, that's not possible. Right. Because I, I, you know, I remember in the mid 1990s when I was covering a private practice in New York city on the weekends while I was an ER doc during the week. And I remember it was all, parents were already wanting the antibiotic prescription. They didn't care what I had to explain to them, what I, what I, what, that their child didn't need the antibiotic based on what they were saying, they didn't care. And they would often go over my head, call the pediatrician that was not on call from the practice and get that prescription of antibiotics because they knew that they could rest easy. Their kid would be better 
with the antibiotics and the medicines. And, you know, it's not difficult to practice Western medicine without pharmaceuticals and injections. It's quite easy, actually. It requires a re-education. It requires a re-education of what goes on in the body, what keeps it well, what makes it develop symptoms, and what how to strike a delicate balance based on the time of day, the time of year, the season, and all of that. So... It's just a matter of people taking back their own authority, their own agency, and people being willing to be responsible and accountable and not be in such fear of the dreaded virus or the dreaded bacteria, when most often an illness is not based on an infection at all. So where are you with that? Because I have heard you speak um, at times about Infection, viruses, bacteria, this kind of thing. So where are you on uh, that sort of um, topic? Where is your perspective at the moment? Are these pathogenic, invisible enemies something that we need to be afraid of? Are they out there to come and get us? Like, Or um, are they just a part <laughs> of the human physiology? Like, What is your perspective? What, what's going on with all this? So here's what's interesting to me. The entire culture around the world truly believes that if you're not sick, you don't have the germ that would make you sick. Hmm. So if you don't have measles and no one around you is suffering from measles, the measles virus is no longer available to you. It's not around you. And that's preposterous. So there's this idea that the only time you get sick is if someone is sick with the bug and transfers it to you because otherwise that bug that made that person sick wouldn't already be in your body. And so there's this idea that the human body is practically sterile, hmm. right? That there are no germs inside of us or on us. And that the only time we have to worry to get germs is if someone's sick and gives it to us. Now, that defies all truth, pretty much. I mean, sure, there are caveats, you know, there's sort of exceptions along the way. But here's why I say that. So the human body has over 100 trillion bacteria. And, you know, when I ask people, well, how many bacteria are on the body? You know, they laugh uncomfortably. <laughs> A lot. It's like, yeah, cool, come on. How many? Thousands. So people don't even know. They have no idea that the human body is lined with over a hundred trillion bacteria. And then I ask the next question, how do they get there? And then there's this other uncomfortable laugh uh, because people don't know. Right. Um, and, and the final answer is um, by eating, by breathing and by existing because the air is always filled with bacteria. You can never avoid inhaling, eating, touching, or being touched by bacteria. So we are in a soup of bacteria all the time. We, we never walk anywhere where there's no bacteria. And so then I say, well, where are these bacteria? And people know they're on the skin. They're in the intestinal tract all the way from the mouth to the anus. They're in the upper airway from the nose, the sinuses, the back of the throat, all the way down the airway into the lungs. And in women, they're, uh, they uh, are surrounding or they're 
uh, overlying the uh, reproductive system. And so they're always there. And then I say to people, how many bacteria are lining the fetus, the unborn baby? And then there's a blank stare because they don't know. And we used to learn that it was a completely sterile environment. The amniotic fluid was completely clear of bacteria. And then over time, research has shown that there are pieces of bacteria in the amniotic fluid that match the flora in the mother's mouth and the intestines, more than likely as a primer for when the baby is ready to come out into the world. But for all intents and purposes, the baby's skin, mouth to anus, nose to lungs, is sterile. There are very few, if any, bacteria. So now, that baby comes out through the vaginal canal where there's a whopping exposure. Drink, breathe in, and touch on the skin of who knows how many bacteria. Hmm. And it's not clean, right? It's not a clean area, no. so to speak. Not dirty in the sense of dirty isn't filthy, but it's not clean. I mean, there's there's lots of microorganisms on there. And then the baby comes out, cries, breathes the air, nurses, gets bacteria into the intestines through the breast milk, is touched, and begins the process of developing over 100 trillion bacteria, nose to lungs, mouth to anus, all over the skin, and for girls in the reproductive system. And nothing happens adversely. So we're taught, again, exposure to bacteria will cause an illness. And yet, people, there's never not an exposure. And if exposure to germs were horrible and deadly, then babies should never make it out of the vaginal canal. That's right. They shouldn't. And they could never make it into the air because every breath they would take, every bite they would take, every suck they would take, every hand that would touch them would have bacteria on them. So once people start to realize this, it, it, it gets them a little shaky, right? Because they could never fathom that we're so infested with all of these microorganisms. And then I take it a step further. And I say, what happens when you eat and the bacteria and the food mix together? They go into the bloodstream and they go into the lymph system. What happens when you wipe your behind and the anal tissue becomes friable and the microorganisms on the anal tissue enter the bloodstream and the lymph system? What happens when you have sexual intercourse and there's an abrasion of the lining where you have sexual intercourse? Hmm. There's entry of bacteria into the bloodstream and the lymph system. What happens when you pick your nose? Come on, I'm a pediatrician. Kids do that all the time, right? They scrape the skin. What happens when they rub the skin and it bleeds or skin falls off? Bacteria go into the bloodstream and the lymph system. What happens when we brush our teeth and we rub against the gums? Microorganisms in the mouth go into the bloodstream. And guess what? I don't get sick. We don't get sick. So not only is exposure to bacteria inconsequential almost 100% of the time, but then they enter the bloodstream and the lymph system mm. through daily practices and almost 100% of the time, nothing bad happens. So I ask 
people, is exposure to bacteria enough to make you sick? And the answer is no. Hmm. All right. So now we have the whole virome, right? This controversial subject. And again, I don't want to get into mold and fungi and, and parasites because there are situations where they are infectious, right? But the, I'm talking about the day-to-day -day life. Just looking at the microorganisms, bacteria, and then the questionable virus. <laughs> so back in the early 2000s, they did something called the Human Genome Project, hmm. where they looked at, you know, what's in our chromosomes? What's in, our, what's in all this genetic material? And they found that maybe 20,000 genes coded for the human body. And that amounted to about one and a half percent of all the genetic material in the chromosomal makeup. One and a half percent. That leaves 98 and a half percent of genetic material unknown. But what they found was that there is genetic material in the chromosomes that resembles a virome, that resembles the manufacturing of viruses. And remember, in our, in our thinking, or lack thereof, viruses are infection, period. But the Human Genome Project found that there are hundreds of thousands of genetic materials that make viral material that stay inside the cells, that actually contribute to the cell function that includes gene transcription, that includes making the placenta when a woman gets pregnant, that includes regulation of cellular homeostasis, that includes extravasation of wastes from the cell out to the membrane. Now, these are not what we think of as infectious materials. These are inborn pieces of genetic material that function way, way down there in the dungeons of the cruise ship, making sure everything keeps running the way it's supposed to. So there's a whole virome that has nothing to do with infection at all. And that's a real smack in the head for most people because they hear the word virus, virome, infection. And so 9% of the DNA they found, and again, this, this needs to be continuously evaluated because there's still a lot of DNA in there we don't understand. 9% coded for viruses. That's six times the amount that codes for physical body, hmm. one and a half percent. So that means at least 120,000 genes that made up a virome that allowed for the production of genetic material that was utilized inside the cell to keep the cells functioning well. And then they found 34% of the genetic material in the chromosome that coded for what they called retrotransposons, which are virus-like particles. So now you have 43% more than a half a million genes that code for the production of virus material. most of which has never been classified or, or characterized. So 
we walk around thinking the only way you have a virus in your body is if someone is sick and gives it to you. The only way you could have viral genetic material is if someone is sick and gives it to you because you can't possibly be harboring viruses because otherwise you'd be sick. All right. But again, these are not viruses. These are genetic materials that are attributed to a virome that are transcribed to help keep the function of the cell going. Right. So the genetic material of the viruses or the virome is transcribed the same way a gene is transcribed when an epigenetic force comes along and says, we need more of this gene. So if you have, let's say you eat a candy bar, right? And you use up your insulin stores because you need to get the sugar out of the bloodstream into the cells. So now a signal is going to be sent to the islet cells in the pancreas. Hey, we need you to activate the genes that manufacture insulin. So some epigenetic factor will signal the transcription of the insulin gene until there's a signal that says, okay, Stop. Now that's how the virome is also turned on. Some epigenetic factors, signals that come out to the, from the cell membrane through the mitochondria, which I'll get to in a second, and then signal the nucleus to transcribe those virome materials because the cell needs the production of those materials for cellular homeostasis and whatever else it does. And then when it's no longer needed, the signal is turned off. So this is not an infection. This is a transcription of genetic material attributed to a virome that's utilized for cellular function. Now, where it gets really complicated is that there are over 100 trillion bacteria lining the body. And inside the bacteria are viromes. Are the genetic material of these viral particles. So in the research that I've done, there are estimates there are over 400 trillion viral particles, viruses in the body. So included what's in the genetic material in the chromosomes, and then included what's inside the over 100 trillion bacteria that are lining the body. And again, what are we told? You don't have a virus in you unless someone is sick and gives it to you. Hmm. So now we have well over a half a million genetic markers that create a virome that produce viral material inside the cell for cellular functions. Then you have over estimated, it's again, it's estimated 400 trillion viruses, viral particles inside bacteria that play a role. And then we have mitochondria. And mitochondria are present in all cells of the body, except for red blood cells. And there are thousands of mitochondria in each of the cells. And they used to be bacteria, hmm. didn't they? Right? So what virome is inside the mitochondrial DNA? And so you see this thinking, or lack thereof, that the only way you get a virus is if something outside comes into you, needs to be readdressed. Now, I'm going to go a little deeper if you're okay with this. No one has ever shown that a virus is infectious. Because no one has ever seen a virus. And so anytime I've ever said that, someone says to me, oh yeah, well, we've seen it on an electron microscope. Hmm. I said, what do you see on an electron microscope? 
And the answer is a black and white photo with a circular blob in two dimension that's flat on the page. I said, now, where in that unbelievably magnified still photo can you conclude that's a virus? How could you do that? Well, it's a sign of the virus entering the cell. I said, but this is a still photo. <laughs> so how do you know it's going in? That's right. Let's say it is a virus. All right, I'll grant you that. How do you know it's going in? How do you know it's not going out of the cell? Like the, the can't prove it with an electron microscope image. You can't prove anything. No one has ever shown that a virus invades a cell and gets it infected. All we've shown is the presence of genetic material that we attribute to something called a virus. So I've always wondered, Daniel, like I've had kids who, you know, parents freak out. They go to the ER because the kid's sick and they do a nasal swab in the ER. And uh, I've had three kids with the following diagnosis. One kid had RSV and enterovirus, right? Another kid had seven viruses from the nasal swab. And most recently, a kid had four viruses diagnosed in the nasal swab. So I asked each parent, I said, so what was the reason for the kid's illness? And they said, no one said. Because when you do a nasal swab, forget the, the lack of integrity of the PCR test for a second. But if you do a nasal swab and you find what you think is the genetic material attributed to a virome, how can you prove whether it's an endogenous virome or an exogenous virome? Hmm. How can you prove whether it's viral genetic material that were expelled from the cell due to trauma, due to the inflammation and the illness, or whether it's extravasation of viral genetic material from the bacteria lining the nose, or from something you inhaled. Hmm. You can't. So this whole idea that, you know, you do a swab and there's RSV there. Okay, well, let's say RSV is real. And let's say it is a virus. And let's say we've never seen it actually invade the cell. Because a virus in and of itself can't do anything unless it's embedded within the genetic code for some epigenetic force to signal the transcription of that material, which is what I said before. But once that genetic material is transcribed, there's no evidence that it's infectious. If it were, we would die. Can I just uh, interrupt for one moment? Yeah, um, please. Because I share your perspective that there is nothing that's transmissible between people. Uh, so I didn't say that. I didn't say that, but go ahead. Well, no, no infectious particle called a virus that's transmissible between people. Well, well, something is definitely synchronized. Yes. So that okay. that was my question. I'll get to that. Go ahead. All right, go ahead. Because there's obviously things like chickenpox parties, and people always ask, well, if there's no infectious particle per se, then how do you explain a chickenpox party or? All right. One kid's got whooping cough, and then the next day, someone else has got whooping cough. Right. So, again, as long as you're mired in the infection model and contagiousness, it's very difficult to see what else could possibly go on because it's such a knee-jerk response. Remember, you shake somebody's hand, there's contagion. Hmm. You kiss somebody, there's contagion. Right. 
you touch skin to skin to somebody, there's contagion. You put your hand on a fork, there's contagion. You put food in your mouth, there's contagion. You're never not in a state of contagiousness. This is really important because you're always transmitting, always sharing microorganisms. This is this is really important because we don't think that something is passed back and forth unless we're sick. Yeah. So if we're passing stuff back and forth and we're not sick, then what's happening when we are sick? We still may be stuff passing stuff back and forth, but that stuff may not be what makes us sick. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that we do not consider because we as humans are so uh, ego and ethnocentric, if those are the right words, that microorganisms have a life of their own. That they have life cycles of their own. And that they are interacting with each other in your body. And they are interacting in the bioenergetic field around you with the organisms in your body and your body and your body. We completely ignore the field of activity that's going on amongst a group of people. Hmm. That's number one. Number two, we never can accept that if a mother got sick, if a child got sick on a Monday and then the other child got sick on a Wednesday and that the mother got sick on a Thursday and the father got sick on a Saturday, that all four people were exposed to environmental toxin or stress at the same time. But Someone expressed it on day one. Someone expressed the reaction to it on day three. Someone expressed the reaction to it on day four. And someone expressed the reaction to it on day six. Hmm. We can only, we only assume that day one passed it to day three, who passed it to day four, who passed it to day six. But we never look at the bio-individuality of the person and say, all four people were exposed to the same stressor, whether it was air pollution, pesticides, uh, news of somebody's death, uh, electromagnetic radiation, air pollution, and I'll leave it at that, uh, listening to the news, right? War, all eating the same food, or a fight that happened in the house, some stress that created enough inflammation in the in the air in the uh, environment that made someone react really quickly to it, and someone else took three days, someone else took four days, and someone else took six days. We never look at it that way, because we don't understand that the reason for the body getting sick is to clear out threshold met inflammation, wastes, toxicity, irritability, irritation, inflammation. So, so the last thing I want to say, it ties that in, is that I remember when I was in college and I was exposed to this concept that when women lived in a dorm together, after a couple of months, they started having period cycles together. Not all of them. Hmm. Not all of them. So not all the kids got chicken pox when they went to a party. Hmm. Right? And no one questioned whether something was passed from woman to woman to make it contagious that they all caught their periods from each other. So again, this is where we get back to this bioenergetic field 
where there are synchronizations of hormone cycles, endocrine cycles, adrenal cycles, thyroid cycles, pituitary gland cycles that allow for the expression of similar symptoms. And so that's a possible reason that people catch an illness hmm. is that they synchronize the expression of whatever toxicity has to come out of their body. And if you, if you look at before we had injections, um, most illnesses improved and death rates improved before vaccinations and antibiotics were available. But it was hygienic practices, sewers improved, water systems improved, uh, living conditions improved. You know, all of these measures that were taken by departments of health to improve public health through hygiene. And so we could never tolerate the possibility that chickenpox actually occurred as a detoxification process because of an exposure to toxicity. Because remember, before the shots ever came out, when were things like measles and chickenpox witnessed? Late winter, early spring. And not every year. They were usually in cycles. So that's strange to me that they weren't every year, which tells me what was in the environment in the late winter, early spring, like spraying of garbage for the fertilization or preparation of spring that would cause the body to express itself the way it did. And I remember in 2019, there was a so-called measles outbreak in the United States in certain cities. And while I was doing my research as to what would cause a, an outbreak of measles in a vaccinated population, right? Because they were predominantly a vaccinated population. Hmm. One of the causes was the actual vaccine itself because it's supposed to be an attenuated vaccine, but it's possible that attenuation fails. But I found an article that was really interesting that came out of China that said that there were measles outbreaks in two cities in China and both cities were found to have increased exposures and incidences of a certain toxic poison put into the air from manufacturing processes. And I thought, well, there's, there it is. So when you go back to looking at infectious illness, infectious illness, and you start understanding the body as uh, with an end game that we have to get rid of wastes, inflammation, toxins, irritability. We have to. That's the end game. Everything that we do in the body is to clean us out. Hmm. We exhale, we poop, we pee, we sweat, we smell, we sleep, we scream, we exercise. All of those are going on all day long, all night long. Because the end game of the body is to get rid of wastes, inflammation, toxins, irritants. And so when you meet threshold, your body has to step it up. It has to augment its natural processes to make sure that those wastes get out. And so instead of exhaling, you're now producing more mucus and coughing. Because mucus is a carrier system that helps remove wastes. Yes. And instead of having normal bowel movements, maybe you're having three or four in the day. And now you're urinating more and you're sweating because your body is working 
to get rid of wastes, inflammation, toxins, and irritants. And so maybe that's one of the reasons that virome exists inside the cells, Daniel. Because when threshold is met in the cells, when toxicity reaches a threshold, because when toxicity embeds itself into the cells, cellular function diminishes. This is medical school 101. And so an epigenetic factor has to signal the cells to save itself from dying unless it's pre-programmed to die hmm. at that stage. So the cells have to do something. And so they start transcribing these viromes to get the cells to expel these wastes, inflammation, toxins, irritants. And the body has to mobilize them and bring them out to the surface. Thus, an acute illness. So by the time an acute illness happens, the body is saving itself from disease. Yes. And the fact of the matter is that there may be many people around you who met the same threshold, whose body bioenergetic fields synchronized with each other to do the job that needs to be done to clean the body out. Hmm. And so you synchronized. And but some people didn't have to. In essence, what you're saying there is that the illness isn't the disease, the illness is the answer to the problem. Correct. And when I give my presentations on my slides, I will say that acute illness is not the problem. It's the solution to the problem. And the problem is the buildup of wastes, toxins, inflammation, and irritants. So with um, injections, let's call them here, uh, for the sake of discussion, uh, we're told that if you have these, you're incidence of these certain acute illnesses is reduced. Correct. Is that true? Yes. And if so, is it because it's suppressing that detoxification response? Correct. And that's the thing. People think that the reason you don't see the expression of those acute illnesses anymore is because the injections work. Look, injections don't stop you from carrying those germs. So let's get that out of our belief system. We walk around thinking that if you give it a shot, you're not going to carry the germ or pass it on anymore. That's not true. None of that's true. Um, but the thing is, is that the injections make you weaker because they debilitate your immune system. And so your body is not as able to detoxify. So it looks like you don't get the acute illness hmm. because the vaccine worked. But you don't get the acute illness because now you have such a buildup of inflammation that your body isn't strong enough to actually get sick. And so you become chronically ill. And I remember... I remember for a documentary that I was interviewed for by Gary Null, I said to him at the end of my interview, I said, remember, injections are meant to cause an acute inflammation in the body, period. But no one has ever checked to see if that acute inflammation persists as a reaction in the body. By definition, injections are meant to cause an acute inflammation, period. No one could dispute that. That's part of the vaccine science. But do they continue to cause inflammation after they are given for days, weeks, months, or years? Hmm. Because chronic inflammation is the hallmark of chronic disease. And we are seeing massive increases in adults and children 
in chronic illnesses. So yeah, you won't see as many acute illnesses because we're pushing illness into the body. Hmm. And the body becomes weaker and more inflamed and unable to move the material out to the surface. We're also failing to call acute illnesses what they really are. So we're changing the name of them. So uh, you can have pertussis by just having a cold and a cough and not whoop. And no one will know it. Right. But we'll just call it a cold. Um, but it still could be pertussis. Hmm. Or we'll call a rash something else like roseola. But we won't call it measles because we're not supposed to see measles anymore. So there are a lot of illnesses that we're still seeing in kids, but we label it something else because it couldn't possibly be what it was. And then the last thing I want to say here sure. on this subject is that I feel very sorry for people who walk around with this badge of honor thinking that if they got the injection, they're immune. And they have no idea that in all likelihood, getting an injection does not make you immune to disease. They have no idea. And so we walk around and we castigate anyone who hasn't gotten the shot because only those who've gotten the shot are immune. Hmm. And yet, if you start to look at something called primary vaccine failure and secondary vaccine failure, you see that in all likelihood, more than half of the people who get shots are not immune to anything. Hmm. They're just more chronically inflamed. Right? I mean, I remember, I remember when I was uh, researching some of this information, I saw... Two to 10% of children who get the shots never develop an antibody at all. Mm. I was like, wow, that's a lot. Mm. And they're all worried about religious exemptions in kids who are less than two to 10% of the population. <laughs> I mean, you have more kids who get the shot who are not immune than you have kids who don't get the shot due to a religious or medical exemption. Mm. Good point. And then you have who knows how many percentages of kids, Daniel, who get the shot, develop an antibody, but it's not a neutralizing antibody. So they're not immune. Right? So you draw the blood, they have antibody, but it's not necessarily a neutralizing antibody. And then you have another group that gets the shot, develops the antibody. It might be neutralizing and it lasts maybe a couple of months. And so how many people are really immune after they get the shots? And what are these antibodies actually neutralizing? Are they neutralizing a toxin? Theoretically, they're neutralizing the microorganism. Yeah, yeah. Theoretically. Yes. But they actually, they actually are toxins. And I think, I think the public needs to know something really important here. Microorganisms are naturally occurring materials. As such, no company can patent a naturally occurring microorganism. Hmm. So in order for them to manufacture these shots, there needs to be something artificial there needs to be something done to these microorganisms that makes them non-natural so that they can make a patent. Right. And I just wonder if you're okay injecting something that's not natural, mm. that had to be changed in order for it to be patented, to be injected into your body. It's It's... Um, I don't know how much more time you've got. Um, do you have, say, another like 10, 15 minutes? 10 minutes. Okay. Some time ago, I was looking into, and we didn't even get to uh, talking about what's behind you there on the board, but maybe we can organize another, another time. time. 
I've looked pretty deep into these childhood illnesses, one of which was chickenpox. And I approached it from that similar perspective of maybe these things are a detoxification response in a, as a direct consequence to toxicity. And what I found were papers published in the early 1900s in the British Medical Journal where they were inducing chickenpox in people by exposing them to arsenic, right? And that sort of confirmed to me that what we're seeing here is not a contagious illness, but rather poisoning. And around that time, um, there were medicines which were arsenic-based. There were like these little beauty wafers that parents would bring home because it's going to beautify the skin. You know, is it possible that they gave these little arsenic wafers to the whole family and said, hey, look, you can all get beautiful skin with me and they all get arsenic poisoning. They all get chicken pox and they go, oh, it was something that got spread around. It was a pathogenic microorganism. Correct. Does that make sense? Does, would that something like that ring true to you? I mean, you're supporting the 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 narratives that I've already spoken about. Is we only consider the uh, the possibility that the illness was caused by an infectious agent. We never consider the possibility that one or more people were exposed to something in the environment that mm -hmm. created a toxic reaction inside them. Yes. That one reacted to on a Monday, one on a Thursday, one on a Friday, one on a Saturday. And so therefore it's, well, he gave it to me, she gave it to me, I gave it to her. Instead of, we all were exposed and our reaction times were different. It makes a lot more sense. Well, but there's no money in that. <laughs> there's no pharmaceuticals and there's no injections in that, right? And that's why I said to you that where we're going in a new paradigm is to recognize that um, an infectious model of illness is not as great a model for explaining illness as we've been led to believe, which will then allow people to understand what a microbiome is, why we're so infested, why we're never not exposed, why there's always contagion and we're rarely sick because of it. That's awesome. I don't, I don't think we're going to um, be able to end on a better note than that. And uh, I understand that you got a lot of things to get done. Dr. Polevsky, thank you for coming and speaking to me and imparting your wisdom. And I think a lot of those things that you've mentioned I'm absolutely on the same wavelength as you. Uh, but I think it's important for people to hear what you've said because a lot of people are still not understanding that whole concept. Uh, they sort of have looked into it a little bit. But I think from listening to you today, it might help them to uh, broaden their horizons and their understanding on what these so-called childhood illnesses and, and things are. In uh, conclusion today, if someone wants to find out more information uh, or get in contact with you uh, and find out about the work that you're doing, where's the best place for them to go? Do you have a website uh, and like an Instagram or a Telegram channel? Yeah, um, you can get me at drpalevsky, P-A-L-E-V-S-K-Y.com. I'm also dr.palevsky. Uh, on Instagram and Dr. Palevsky on Telegram. And then if you go to my website, you want to sign up for my newsletters. I send out newsletters twice a month. I have lots of video interviews that I've done that you can find on my website media section, and you can sign up for the newsletter. You can hear all the other stuff that I've done. You can also see the other platforms where my material is posted. And every Thursday night, in the United States, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, I do a podcast called Critically Thinking with Dr. T and Dr. P. I'm Dr. P, and Dr. T is Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. And once a month, we do a podcast on critically thinking 
with the five docs. That includes me, Dr. T, Christiane Northrup, Lee Merritt, and Carrie Madday. Thank you so much, Dr. Pulevsky. Uh, it's truly revolutionary stuff that um, you've been discussing here this evening. I appreciate you imparting your wisdom and giving your time. And hopefully we can catch up again sometime to talk about uh, the things that we were mentioning before the show uh, about the future of medicine and um, creating a world where we can improve people's health the right way. Great. I look forward to it. Thank you for this opportunity, Daniel. I appreciate it. Thanks once again. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.